1: Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Bergen. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book in some area of ruined sport, and we talk with the author. This week, my guest is Matthew Algio. We are discussing his book, Pedestrianism, When Watching People Walk is America's Favorite Spectator Sport, published by Chicago Review Press in 2014. Matthew is an independent researcher and writer who's written three previous books on curious yet revealing moments in American history. His eye for the obscure and the overlooked brought him to the sport of pedestrianism, which was hugely popular in the United States and England from the mid-19th century to the 1890s. Matthew's book is engaging and at times surprising, he does well both in drawing parallels between pedestrianism and contemporary sports and in connecting this 19th century sport to other longer lasting innovations of the industrial age. It was a pleasure to speak with Matthew about his book. I hope you enjoy our interview. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is Matthew Algio. Matthew, welcome to the podcast.
0: Great to be with you, Bruce.
1: And uh, so we start always uh, with a, a bit of introduction about our guests. And uh, Matthew, you've written, written a few books on, on interesting, interesting topics. And uh, you also have something of a uh, globe-trotting life. So uh, why don't you give us a bit of a background about yourself?
0: Yeah, the exotic life of the non-best-selling author. Um, I, uh, I, I, my background's in radio. I worked in public radio uh, for many years. Uh, I got out of college in 88 Uh, with a degree in folklore, and uh, not a lot of folklore jobs back then. Not like today. There's tons of folklore (laughs) jobs. Um, So in 88, I moved to Seattle, and I started uh, working part-time at the public radio station there. And I bounced around and worked for a bunch of public radio stations. In 97, I was working at a station in St. Louis, St. Louis Public Radio. And it was there that I uh, met my wife. Uh, we actually met in a Mormon temple. Uh, neither of us were Mormon, but the uh, Mormons opened the temple before it's consecrated uh, for a media day. And so my wife was a reporter at a newspaper and I worked at the radio station. So we're, we're uh, two of the few Gentiles, I guess, who have met in a Mormon temple. And uh, we got married in 98, moved to Maine. I worked about five years at Maine Public Radio. And then in 2003, moved to Los Angeles, worked at a Public radio program called Marketplace, and that was about the time that Allison, my wife, took the foreign service exam, and uh, she passed it. And it was in early '95 that uh, she began her training in the foreign service, and uh, uh, we shipped out to our first post, which is in uh, uh, was in West Africa, Mali. And uh, it was while I was there that uh, I began working on my first book. And and writing these books, uh, although I joke it's it's not very lucrative, it does give me something to do. And it's also, most importantly, very transportable. Uh, you know, I can do the research while we're back in Washington. Uh, you know, Allison comes back here for training between each post. And I can kind of get all the research done at Library of Congress and then go to post and write the book. And my first book was about the 1943 merger of the pittsburgh steelers and the philadelphia eagles two nfl teams and during world war ii the nfl had lost so many players to uh uh, to serve in the armed forces that they were forced to merge the steelers and the eagles and in 1943 for a season they became the Steagles. and uh, the book is called last team standing and it's all about the Steagles. and you know it's uh the quarterback is uh death in one ear, the wide receivers blind in one eye, and a lot of perforated eardrums, that sort of thing. But it was while I was working on uh, that book that I learned about this sport of pedestrianism. Pedestrianism, it was the most popular spectator sport uh, in the 1870s and 1880s. And I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind. You know, I wanted to um, you know, I I didn't delve into it too much in, in the Stegels book, but uh, it was always in the back of my mind. And uh, over the years, I, I've written a couple other books. I wrote a book about uh, Harry Truman and a road trip he took in 1953 and a secret operation on Grover Cleveland in 1893. And uh, But this this idea of pedestrianism, watching people walk as a spectator sport, really never left the back of my mind. And so uh, when I had a chance to write about it a couple of years ago, I, I was uh, really glad to uh, jump at it.
1: And this is something that has been there you talk about this in your acknowledgements, the, the, there have been other authors who've written about pedestrianism. So this is, uh, um, something that historians and writers, uh, have taken note of.
0: Yeah. Um, but it always seems to be sort of in, in a way, kind of in a passing way. Um, uh, there is a, a, a guy, a Paul Marshall, uh, who has one of his uh, one of his? Um, I think a great great uncle was a pedestrian in the 1890s, and he lives in England. and He's done a ton of research, and he was really helpful to me. Uh, I went to England to do some research and uh, met up with him, and he's written basically an encyclopedia of pedestrianism uh, called King of the Peds. Uh, mine's more of a narrative. Um, I, I kind of focus on just a couple of the pedestrians and use them to tell the story of uh, of what the sport was like and what America was like in the 1870s and the 1880s. Um, there's also been a couple of uh, Peter Lovesy, I believe his name is, a uh, uh, writes uh, detective novels and he has set uh, at least one uh, at a great six-day walking match. So uh, it's one of those uh, weird little uh, Victorian things that uh, pops up from uh, time to time. But uh, I don't think anybody had really done, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do with this book is you know, kind of turn it into you know, narrative nonfiction and really focus on, on the characters and there really were some interesting characters in the sport.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, before we turn to the book, I want to ask about this this degree in your training in, in folklore and, yeah. and how, that, uh, how that shapes the way that you approach a, a research topic like pedestrianism and, and write about it.
0: Actually, I, you know, I joke about it a lot, uh, but uh, folklore, uh, and really it's, we're talking about cultural anthropology, mm-hmm. uh, oral traditions, that sort of thing. And, and uh, the training for that was absolutely excellent training for journalism and for writing. Um, basically uh, studying folklore, you have to learn how to research. And not only that research topics that, uh, might not be very well known, uh you know, uh, holiday traditions in the Slavic community of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, for instance. Um, and, and so uh, you would go find people who would remember what life was like 40, 50, 60 years ago, uh, record them. You have to ask the right questions. You have to be very focused. And uh, and also you have to be able to write uh, halfway, uh, halfway decently. And, and so it really did turn out to be uh, an excellent uh, help to me uh, in my future endeavors. It really did.
1: And I suppose you also have, uh, you develop an eye for the curious.
0: I guess I've always had that. and uh, That was one of the things that drew me to folklore uh, in the first place. And then later when I, Got the opportunity to write these books and i'm really blessed you know my wife has a a, a good stable job and uh, makes a good living that can allow me to indulge in these uh these books um but i've always been drawn to kind of the obscure or the forgot or the forgotten you know the things that uh, kind of fall by the wayside as, as time passes and uh, i really like to use those little things like the steeples or pedestrianism and then you know, it's interesting, it's fun for me to go learn more about the times and then use that story to talk about, you know, the era in which they took place.
1: All right, well, let's turn to the book, Matthew. And, uh, and you start the book in 1860, uh, in the United States. And uh, you know, the first line is that uh, it begins, it begins with a wager. So can you talk about uh, the wager in this, this first walk and uh, how pedestrianism gains popularity in the United States?
0: Yeah, it was in uh, the autumn of 1860, a door-to-door bookseller in New England, a guy named Edward Payson Weston made a bet with a friend of his, and it was really kind of a facetious bet. He uh, he bet that uh, Lincoln would lose the presidential election that year, and of course, uh, Lincoln won the, the election and Weston lost the bet. Now, the terms of the bet were that the loser of the election uh, had to walk from Boston to Washington in 10 days. Uh, Nobody really expected anybody to live up to their uh, end of the bet. But Weston, because he was a door-to-door book salesman, he actually walked quite a lot, and uh, he ended up uh, 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 undertaking the walk. Uh, from Boston. He began on President's Day and arrived uh, on Inauguration Day in Washington. Unfortunately, he was about four hours late to witness the inauguration. Uh, but nonetheless, the walk itself generated tons of uh, publicity. And uh, newspapers up and down the uh, East Coast, especially, reported on the progress of Weston's walk. And um, it turned into kind of a national sensation. And Weston became a very uh, 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 a famous figure. It was a very divisive time in American history, I mean, in the winter of 1860-61. One, the states are beginning to secede from the union. There's really not a lot of uh, good news stories in the paper, and so uh, Weston's story, walking from Boston to Washington, crossing the Mason-Dixon line, uh, really generated a lot of uh, a lot of interest, and so he became quite famous. And after the war. He decided to capital, capitalize on his uh, popularity and, and kind of turned pro, uh, began staging walking, uh, walking exhibitions uh, in, uh, inside uh, roller rinks and uh, other small arenas. And he was really sort of the, the, the grandfather of the sport.
1: And there were other people at the time who were uh, kind of taking up these, um, let say, these challenges or dares to have uh, these long distance walks at the time, right?
0: Yeah, actually, the history of it goes back even further. I mean, in uh, 18, I believe it was 1809, in uh, England, there was a, a Scottish aristocrat named uh, Captain Barclay, and uh, he 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 made a bet that he could walk one mile. Every hour for one thousand consecutive hours, and this drew huge crowds to watch him basically walk a half mile up the street and a half mile back every hour. And uh, he was one of the first uh, first people to popularize the idea of long distance uh, of long distance walking. And often wagers were huffed in these things. You know, guys would make a bet uh, that they could walk uh, a, a thousand half hours every half hour for a thousand consecutive you know half hours. That sort of thing. Uh, it really kind of. Went to a ridiculous extreme. There was a a one guy who did a a thousand walked a quarter mile every 15 minutes for a thousand consecutive 15-minute periods. I forget what it is. 11. I mean, it's really just an exercise in sleep deprivation at that point. But <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, there were a bunch of people who did these long-distance uh, events. But Weston really um, uh, Weston uh, had the smarts to, A, take it inside where people had to pay to watch you and, B, understand that it was really uh, uh, an event. I mean, he would hire brass bands. He himself would sometimes play the cornet while he walked. And so he really had a sense of uh, combining entertainment and sport in a way that uh, he, would, he would really appreciate if he saw some uh, uh, sports today.
1: Yeah, so he was really a, he was really a showman.
0: Yeah, he always wore a, a long velvet uh, coat and carried a cane and uh, always played up to the crowd. He loved the attention. Now, this was not the case with all the pedestrians, I and mean, it really miffed some of his competitors. Uh, uh, Weston kind of came from a uh, more of an upper-class background, and as the sport evolved, most of the competitors came from more blue-collar backgrounds, working-class backgrounds, and they just sort of went about it with a grim determination keeping their face straight down on the track and, you know, churning their arms like pistons. And while Weston sort of, you know, gallivanted about with the coronet and, you know, tossing his cane into the air and catching it, that sort of thing. But Weston had a flair for entertainment, no doubt about it.
1: Well, let's uh, bring Weston's rival, uh, Dan O'Leary, into the conversation. So can you can you tell us about him?
0: Yeah, Dan O'Leary was an immigrant from Ireland to Chicago, and uh, he had heard about Weston's exploits. This is about 1875, 1876. And uh, he actually challenged Weston to a six-day match, and uh, Weston said, well go set a good record, man. And uh, so O'Leary did. He walked uh, over 100 miles in 24 hours, which was considered sort of the gold standard of, of, uh, you know, uh, pedestrianism at the time, you know, join the 100 mile club. And and then he set a six day record. I forget, he walked something like 500 miles over six days. And so eventually, uh, Weston was forced uh, to compete uh, with Leary, against O'Leary, and they had a six-day race in Chicago in 1876, and it was the event of the season. Uh, It it was uh, held in a huge old building in Chicago. You have to remember at the time, um, we're really seeing the first big modern public facilities, uh, convention centers, I guess we would call them today. Usually, they were considered agricultural halls. They would have expositions in them, that sort of thing. Chicago had just built one after the Great Fire, and it could hold 30,000 people or so And so it was filled every night to watch Weston and O'Leary do this six-day walk. Weston lost, uh, and uh, he complained bitterly that O'Leary had a home field advantage because it had taken place in Chicago, which was O'Leary's adopted hometown. Although Weston really only had himself to blame because Weston wanted to hold the event in the largest venue possible to make the most amount of money possible. (laughs) And so uh, he went to Chicago where the biggest building was and ended up losing
1: so and this is something I, I really enjoyed about the book as you describe you you have something of, of capsule histories of these different venues where they where uh, these these races I guess you would call them take place. So in Chicago uh, you talk about venues in New York as well as uh, as well as London, and so uh, I'll ask you to talk about the the purposes of these buildings because you know unlike you know today we have indoor indoor track meets and so forth that take place in an arena but back then you didn't have indoor indoor sports so so you would take something as you described it like a convention center and turn it into an athletic arena
0: yeah what happened is populations began moving into the urban centers in the united states there began to be a need for large public buildings now these were really usually constructed just to uh maybe whole political rallies or the religious rallies. Often there was an agricultural component to it. Uh, there might be cattle sales. There might be uh, farm machinery uh, conventions where farmers could come and, and see the latest technology and farm machinery. And they are very simple structures. And usually they just have a big, huge, flat open floor, and maybe some stands uh, would be constructed around the outside. But most of the time it was just um, uh, people come stand uh, around the edges of the track. They would build a dirt track in these uh, arenas for the six-day matches, and people would just come and stand and watch. And so um, it really was the the first... huge public buildings uh, that the United States uh, had were in the decade after the Civil War. Uh, Urbanization, as I said, was the main cause of this. You have people concentrated in the cities. Um, The cities are rapidly expanding, and and you need a place for people to convene, uh, whether it's for a political convention, or as I said, maybe it'll be a religious revival, that sort of thing. And so the uh, Expo in Chicago uh, and uh, in New York, you had uh, P.T. Barnum's, uh, what did he call The Grand Roman Hippodrome. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, this Kind of, it sort of evolved into the first Madison Square Garden. So these were the first big arenas. At the same time, on the other side of the Atlantic, in London, uh, they had uh, the Agricultural Hall, the Aggie, uh, which actually still stands today. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a convention, <laughs> basically. It's a convention center. But originally, the Aggie was built as a, as a, as a place for a, 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 re- a relatively sanitary place uh, for uh, farmers to bring their livestock and uh, auction it off and uh they wanted to move it indoors and 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 you could control uh, better the animals and sanitation and that sort of thing so uh really the big the big public stadiums that we see today have their roots in these uh uh, uh agricultural exposition halls of the uh, of the mid to late 19th century and so how many people would would come to
1: these events these uh, uh pedestrian races
0: it's hard to tell, uh, Madison square garden, for example, had a capacity of about 10,000, uh, the six day races, which began, of course, you couldn't race on Sunday. So they began right after midnight, Sunday night and went up straight up until midnight, the following Saturday night. And whoever walked the farthest was the winner. The rules were pretty simple. Um, those races generally in the evenings would be a, a sellout 10,000 people, but they were continuous events. And so people could come and go. Uh, so if so, you,
1: sorry to interrupt. So if you bought a ticket, Right. You could, say, come on Monday and then come back again on Thursday?
0: No. Uh, oh. you, could, you could buy uh, what they would call a season pass where you could come and go. But if you bought a ticket and arrived on Sunday and stayed in the arena until... The following Saturday, you could live inside the arena for six days, and so this became a problem because a lot of uh, a lot of poor people, uh, a, a lot of transient people would uh, just buy a ticket for ten cents or a quarter, and uh, if they had a dollar. Um, You know, they could get a sandwich and a coffee every day and basically live inside the arena. Um, Later on, they would do sweeps and at 3 a.m. everybody would have to leave the arena. So they uh, uh, they got rid of the uh, stragglers. Um, But because if people could come and go as they wanted the attendances for some of these things, I mean, the capacity of Madison Square Square Guards 10,000 six day race. You would think 60,000 would be the maximum, but actually, they get over 100,000, 120,000 people would pay because you could come and go at any time. It, it, it was a great um, spectator sport for uh, people who worked in the new factories, who worked a shift. If your shift ended at 7 a.m. or 3 p.m. or 11 p.m., it didn't matter before or after the shift, you could stop by and, and watch a little of the great walking match. And so it had that advantage of being continuous action, and therefore the promoters were able to continuously sell tickets.
1: Now we should probably put continuous action in uh, in quotation marks. So could be, even though even though we don't have video of these 19th century pedestrian races, I imagine that there was, there was more activity going on uh, within these large halls than just just watching people walk around a, a track, correct?
0: I will admit, it, 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 it. what was one of the newspaper quotes, it's not the most entrancing sport. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but this would go back to Weston here, who uh, they, they took his idea. And so if you went, uh, especially like uh, for Friday or Saturday night near the end of the race, um, there would be brass bands. They might have two bands playing, taking turns. Uh, the arena would be absolutely uh, pulsing is sold out people screaming themselves force uh wagering going on everywhere uh beer just sold by the gallons the drinking age in new york at the time was 16 by the way And, and so uh it was really like a venue for uh entertainment more than just watching people walk you want to hear the music you want to be part of something you want to be part of something uh that was uh you know a big event at the time and it was like uh you know it was the first time, really, that in America, large numbers of people had gotten together um, to watch uh, a sporting event. And so it was really historic at the time, in a way. And people really were eager to be part of it. It was a spectacle. Um, they wore colorful costumes. The you know each of the each of the runners would have his own uh special uh running suit um uh, the, yeah there'd be music there'd be vendors selling you know souvenir photographs of the pedestrians or uh uh um you know clam chowder i mean it was really i, I think if you went back and saw it really at its height and it was really exciting now if you went at 3am on a tuesday uh Most of the competitors might not even be on the track; they might be in bed. Uh They had little cots uh, set up on tent, in tents uh, inside the inside the track, and so it, it really kind of depended when you went. But when it was rocking, I think it was really rocking.
1: Yeah, and so I was going to ask that as well when you talk about these six day races, they weren't they were walking constantly for six days. They would they would come off the track and rest, uh, correct?
0: They would be on the track uh, out of 24 hours, generally uh, 21 to 22 hours. Uh, Most of the pedestrians would take short breaks throughout the day. Uh, They wouldn't sleep, uh, you know, for more than uh, 20 or 30 minutes at a time. So generally there was always somebody on the track. But right, uh, it it wasn't, you couldn't really go 24 straight hours walking. Um, Some people uh, that did, uh, but to do it for six days, it was, almost impossible. And so, uh, the best pedestrians really sort of organized their time down to the minute about when they would be on the track, when they would eat and when they would rest. Weston was like that. He was very neurotic about exactly down to the minute when he would be on the track and when he would sleep and when he would eat. And, and so, uh, yeah, the competitors would not be, uh, 24 hours, but, uh, but would still be in motion, usually 21 to 22. Um, I, I think, uh, I talk in the book a little bit that, um, I think most of these guys were actually polyphasic sleepers, which is, Mm -hmm. uh, this is something where uh, people who do these solo around the world boat races can do this, where you sleep in small increments several times instead of just sleeping once or twice. Uh, Most of us, I guess, are monophasic uh, sleepers. We go to bed at 8 p.m. and get up at 5, whatever. Uh, But these guys, I think, especially the best, just their bodies were able to get all the sleep they needed in very small increments. And uh, that was a powerful advantage in a sport where endurance was key.
1: And I want to ask about this. So what was the, what was the pace that they set? You mentioned Weston was uh, neurotic about uh, uh, how he planned out his walks. What was the, what was the pace that they took as opposed to say the pace that you or I would take with, uh, Uh, you know, in walking a mile?
0: Weston, um, Weston actually didn't walk very fast. Uh, Weston walked, uh, and the average the average person walks about um, uh, four miles an hour. Weston walked about five miles an hour. Uh, he could get up to six miles an hour, but uh, generally he didn't walk very fast. Endurance was really the key here, not speed. Now, looking back at some of the uh, descriptions of some of the uh, way people walked at the time, you hear a lot of descriptions about people swinging their hips. I mean, at the beginning it was strictly walking; you had to keep one hip on the or one foot on the ground at all times. And it really sounds like some of these guys did adopt what we consider the modern speed walking kind, you know, that yeah. really, really swing your hips. And so those guys could walk uh, really pretty fast. Um, you're getting up into seven, uh, even eight miles an hour, I mean, basically it's a, it's a slow job. Um, but uh, the early pedestrians really did not concentrate on speed. They concentrated more on endurance. And uh, so Weston, although – he was very famous as a walker. He wasn't a particularly fast walker. Uh, his gift was um, uh, was endurance.
1: You do mention though that there
0: were uh, in some of the later races there were people who who were jogging for for part of the race. Yeah, what happened was uh, in the as it grew as as the sport became popular in the 1870s in the U.S. Uh, Weston went to England to go on a promos- promotional tour and immediately uh, challenged what was considered the uh, best pedestrian in England to a 24-hour race in Weston, won. And this really hurt the uh, English pride. And so there was a member of parliament, uh, a guy named uh, Astley, Sir John Astley. And uh, he proposed a race, uh, a series of races, six days long to determine the world's champion pedestrian. And uh, what they did is... Uh, The British considered themselves better runners uh, than walkers. And uh, since Astley was British, he got to make the rules. It was a go-as-you-please affair, these Astley belt races. Um, you could run, walk, crawl, whatever you wanted to do. And so uh, this was sort of new pedestrianism out of strictly walking into uh, into uh, allowing people to run. Uh, ironically, though, uh, for the first couple races, uh, uh, the Americans won. Uh, uh, O'Leary won the very first race, which took place in London, and he walked the entire time. It took a while for the people who ran to figure out you can't just run as hard as you you know, all out for six days—it was impossible. And so, in these early races, the Americans uh, who were the walkers would be down—you know—would be a hundred miles behind after two days, and, and and by the fourth day, all the other guys were taken out of the arena on stretchers. I mean, they couldn't sustain the pace. Slow and steady was the only way uh, to win a six-day race, uh, whether you were walking uh, or running. And eventually, the runners figured out. Uh, what the what the walkers already knew, and that was you really had to pace yourself and uh, come up with a schedule so running was allowed in the in the later races and uh, and these these proved quite popular for a for a short period of time as well
1: so getting back to O'Leary and Weston and their rivalry this is a rivalry that was carried over to uh, England they did uh, they did compete against each other
0: in yeah. London
1: and this drew a lot of attention having these uh, American
0: walkers come over yeah, that was uh, kind of what spurred Astley uh, to uh, develop his uh, series of uh, races for the Astley Belt. Uh, uh, O'Leary and uh, Weston uh, held a held a big race in London, and it was a huge sensation. It was held at the Aggie, the Agricultural Hall, and um, uh, uh, thousands of people attended. This people were just uh, amazed at how popular uh, it was. Partly the reason it was popular is because they were stand-ins for what was basically an international uh, rivalry. Of course, O'Leary was an Irish Irish immigrant. He was uh, he was now a citizen, but uh, he was kind of a stand-in for Ireland. at Weston, uh, who was uh, sort of a blue blood from uh, Rhode Island, from New England, he, he kind of rep- He was and he was a real Anglophile, so he sort of represented the British. and uh, And so the races kind of were a, a metaphor for British Irish relations at the time. And a lot of Irish immigrants went to the Aggie. To Watch O'Leary, and uh, O'Leary defeated Weston.
1: And it was a mixed. You, you also mentioned that that Weston um, uh, had this connection with the upper class. So, so it wasn't only mixed in terms of having English and Irish. It was mixed in terms of having uh, kind of working class and upper class uh, uh,
0: spectators. Absolutely, and uh, Weston identified very clearly with the British upper class. I mean, he 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 kind of wanted to have been born into British aristocracy. Uh, unfortunately, he was born in Providence and uh, and uh, was not very good with money, uh, so he had neither. Um, uh, O'Leary, uh, of course, Irish immigrant, a working class guy. He was a bookseller as well, coincidentally, just like Weston was. But O'Leary was definitely a working class uh, guy, and he appealed to that uh, uh, appealed to that element, especially the the Irish, as I said, and so. So, yeah, it was uh, O'Leary. O'Leary was the working class guy. Weston's the upper class guy. Weston's sort of the stand-in for England. O'Leary, the stand-in for Ireland. And so you had all these things playing out at the same time. And again, the first time you've got these big public sporting events uh, in the UK. And so uh, these events are kind of stand-ins almost in a way for larger issues that are playing out in the society at the time. So
1: you mentioned that Weston wasn't very good with money. How much, uh, what were the size of the purses for these events? How much were these uh, walkers getting paid?
0: Yeah. Uh, in 1878, 1879, there were a couple of big races in New York City. And uh, 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 Charles Rowell, who was an Englishman, won a couple of them. And for each of those races, he won $20,000, which would be roughly, it's always hard to do this, about half a million dollars today. Uh, so we won two of these races. So he made uh, basically a million dollars that year in 12 days. Um, and so the purses got quite huge. And um, the problem with it is... Money ruined the sport in a way, as it always seems to do. Um, as it became more profitable, gamblers got more involved. And uh, you could wager on anything back then. Who would be the first guy to drop out of the race? Who would be the second guy to drop out? Who would finish eighth? Uh, who's going to be in first place after the first day? You could wager on anything. And so gamblers began uh, colluding with some of the less scrupulous uh, pedestrians to uh, to fix races. And this really helped, uh, helped put an end to uh, the popularity of the six-day races.
1: So you've talked about uh, how this was a mass spectator sport. that we have tens of thousands of, of people buying tickets and coming to these events. This was also something that was widely covered in newspapers. Uh, you talk about how, uh, reports of races would go up by telegraph, and there'd be people waiting at uh, uh, telegraph offices to hear the news. It was commercialized in terms of, of fan memorabilia, and this is something you do very well in the book that you, you you talk about. This was a modern sport, and and a lot of the things that we see in contemporary sports were part of pedestrianism. So, so can you talk about pedestrianism really as as an early example of of modern commercialized sport?
0: Well, one of my favorite examples is that uh, many of the early pedestrians uh, were sponsored and uh, were sponsored by newspapers, and so they would compete wearing uh, shirts with the newspaper 's logo emblazoned across the front and so it was really one of the first instances of corporate sponsorship uh, dan o 'Leary who we 've talked about a lot, he became a spokesperson for a brand of salt. Uh, these guys were the first uh, celebrity athletes really they were you know they got uh, corporate uh, endorsements. Um, uh, There was a, uh, you know, when the first uh, trading cards came out and tobacco packs, they featured pedestrians. Um, It really was the first sport that figured out figured out how to monetize. Uh, the event uh and, in, and in, not in just uh, charging attendance um, uh, you know in in selling uh, selling beer and souvenirs, as you said, there was memorabilia um, there was a cruise that uh, that the pedestrians offered I, I found out about where you know ten famous pedestrians you could cruise with them from uh, New York to Greenwich, and they uh, they charge a dollar a person to come and just hang out with these guys and so it's really interesting to see um, you know the very first like sort of the embryo of the Uh, You know, I call it the sports industrial complex that we have today, Um, but it's 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 really there.
1: So then the big question would be, why, why,
0: why is this so hugely popular? My short answer is that there wasn't much else to do. I mean, it, it, in a way, it was just a matter of uh, of, of, of uh, timing for this. Uh, you know, snail races might have been just as popular. If somebody had figured out a way to to charge people to watch it. I mean, we talked about earlier the construction of these big arenas in, in public spaces for the first time. Well, all these people are moving into the city urbanization, industrialization, uh, you have people working shifts. Now we're moving from an agrarian to an industrial urban culture. And so for the first time, people have a little bit of extra money in their hands, and then they also have a little bit of extra time. And so this took advantage of both those things. Um, there was, there was, uh, uh you know, people, uh, people, people needed something, uh, to do for entertainment, there was very little entertainment, especially for the working class. I mean, a ticket to a play or a musical at the time was about a dollar, and that was a pretty good wage for a day. Um, and so these events really, uh, really capitalized, really uh, uh, focused on um, you know ten cents, twenty-five cents a day uh, uh, to, to, to attend one of these matches. That was something that a working person could do, and, and so uh, it, it really, really filled a void. It filled a void, and uh, for a short time, it's it's popular. Was unparalleled.
1: And something that you do discuss in the book is that pedestrianism has its popularity just before baseball in the United States and soccer in England
0: emerge as, as mass spectator sports. Yeah, baseball was really in its infancy in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, the National League was formed in 1876, but it was really a pretty ragtag enterprise and didn't have a very good reputation either. Um, uh, in the same way, in soccer, uh, uh, while pedestrianism was popular, a law was passed that uh, uh, gave uh, working people a half day off Saturday, half day off in, uh, in the UK. And that uh, that allowed uh, po- soccer to emerge as a popular spectator and participant sport. Uh, but these are still sort of working around the edges, and uh, we're talking 1875 to eighteen eighty. 85 by 1890, the national league was pretty stable. Um, uh, I forget the exact, uh, I think there were uh, nine teams. Eight of them are still around. Only the Cleveland spiders are gone. Uh, so it really had become a baseball by 1890 sort of stabilizes the owners impose, uh, the reserve clause a salary cap, um, they control costs. They, you know, free agency is eliminated. And so, uh, they did these things, which are not probably, you know, the, the, the fairest things to do, but, uh, It really helped stabilize the sport. And so baseball takes off in the 1890s, really. And the other thing uh, that that really killed pedestrianism was the invention of the safety bicycle Um, in the 1880s. uh, You know, before that, they had the bicycles with the huge. You know, front wheel and that little tiny back wheel, many farthing they called them. Well, uh, in the 1880s, the safety bicycle, which is a bicycle we know today, with the two same size wheels, the chain drive shaft, all that, that became very popular. And uh, almost overnight, the pedestrians uh, were replaced by bicycle races, six-day bicycle races. It was a lot more exciting uh, to watch a uh, uh, a six-day bicycle race than a six-day walking match. You know, I I say uh, pedestrianism was like NASCAR at four miles an hour. Well, no, it was like NASCAR at fifteen miles an hour. Uh, but they actually had crashes, uh, and uh, it was much more spectacular sport, and it proved immensely popular. I mean, the six-day bicycle races were really, uh, until the early twentieth century, uh, quite popular in the U.S.
1: So, Matthew, your book focuses on O'Leary and uh, and Weston, but there's one other competitor that you do. Uh, Talk quite a bit about, and that's uh, a walker named Frank Hart. And uh, so, yeah. can you explain, uh, talk about him and his significance?
0: Black guy. He was an, uh, He came from Haiti. He was born in Haiti, but came to Boston and uh, was working as a grocery store clerk. And on a lark, entered, uh, I think it was a twenty-four hour race, and uh, finished in second. And uh, and uh, he got noticed by Dan O'Leary. Uh O'Leary, as he was getting older, was looking to move into promotion and instead of competing. And he saw this uh, this uh, pedestrian, Dan Hart, and uh, kind of took him under his wing. Uh, Dan O'Leary was Frank Hart's mentor. O'Leary was his uh, – uh, and Hart was his protege. And uh, O'Leary trained Frank Hart. And Frank Hart ended up winning uh, a couple of big races, a major race in New York uh, in the early 1880s. And he really was the most famous black athlete in the United States at the time. I mean, he was really the first famous black athlete who could make the argument in the United States at the time. And it's really interesting to see that the sport at the time was really, it it was open uh, in one of the races, Hart won, another uh, African-American, another uh, black competitor finished second. So uh, pedestrianism really, I mean, if you could walk <laughs> and 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 if you could uh, live without sleep for six days, uh, if you had endurance, uh, pedestrianism really opened doors. Uh O'Leary, the Irish immigrant, uh, uh Dan Hart uh or Frank Hart, I'm sorry, I keep saying Dan Hart, Frank Hart the uh uh, uh Haitian immigrant, um uh, there were women walkers too, uh, who could competed in their own six day races. And so you've had this whole variety uh of competitors in a way that you really wouldn't expect for the time.
1: And Hart was something that was interesting in your book. Hart was quite popular with uh, with spectators.
0: He was. Um, Frank Hart was uh, extremely popular uh, with uh, black and white uh, spectators. Um, he really, uh, he, well, he did something that uh, endeared him to all spectators. Charles Rowell was a famous uh, English pedestrian, and he had this really annoying tactic where he would run up close behind a competitor and sort of dog him, just stay right behind him step for step. Well, Frank Hart did this to Rao. He turned the tables on him in a race in New York and the spectators just loved this. And they chanted Hart's name, Hart, Hart, Hart. And uh it it, it uh it really uh it did really uh win him a lot of fans. Um, uh, people uh people enjoyed his tenacity and I think people appreciated his uh his status as an underdog uh, not only in the sport but in the in the culture as a whole. Um, it, it was it was really interesting how uh, how the sport um, in a way for uh, black athletes in the United States um, it, it was almost more opportunity uh, in the decades between the Civil War and, and the early 20th century. Um, Moses uh, Fleetwood uh, Walker, uh, was the first African-American baseball player he played in one of the major leagues at the time. I mean, it really wasn't until uh, you get the um, Plessy versus Ferguson, you get formalized segregation that uh, black athletes are not allowed to compete with or against white athletes. And so it was at really uh, a really, uh, short window there in the 1870s or 1880s where blacks and whites competed together.
1: So when did uh, we've talked about some of the reasons why pedestrianism uh, lost popularity? When, when did pedestrianism what would be the word uh, when did it disappear from the sporting scene?
0: Well, it died a pretty quick death, as I mentioned when bicycle racing became popular in the mid-1880s, really by 1890, the great six-day matches uh, were a thing of the past. They had been replaced by bicycle races. Uh, they built banked. Um, tracks for the bicycles to race on so they could go even faster. But even bicycle racing faced some obstacles. And uh, in New York, uh, by the 1890s, these six-day races, be it pedestrian, walking, running, bicycling, were kind of seen as cruel. Cool. I mean, people, one of the reasons you went to watch these races was to see the crash. I mean, it's like people who go to Uh, You know, NASCAR races, part of the spectacle is the accident. And uh, people would go to uh, watch a six day bicycle race or a six day walking match just to see people in the last throes of sanity, barely staggering around the track, trying to keep their balance. I mean, this this was amusing for some people, and it, it it disturbed a lot of people. There were sermons against six-day races, and eventually there was legislation uh, in New York State. There was a bill introduced uh, in 1899 to ban six-day exhibitions of any kind, uh, and so uh, the bill was passed by the legislature, and it was signed by the governor, who at the time was Theodore Roosevelt, who, of course, was one of our most active Uh, He never shied away from strenuous activity, but uh, uh, he agreed that uh, the six day races had become um, less athletic competitions and more exercises and, you know, um, of uh, cruelty, of of taking advantage of the competitors for the enjoyment of the spectators. It had become gladiatorial, uh, one of the sermons said.
1: So your last chapter of your book uh, brings to a close the stories of of Weston and O'Leary. And uh, something that was striking is that they remained, I don't know if we would say famous, but uh, kind of popular figures well into the 20th century or early 20th century.
0: Yeah, um uh Weston continued to stage long distance uh, walking exhibitions uh, uh in, into his 80s. Um he he walked from uh New York to San Francisco, he did a walk from Buffalo to New York. Uh um he did long walking exhibitions and what he would do is he would get sponsors and he would sell a program as he walked along and so you would buy a five cents, you know, buy a souvenir program for five cents, and then he would sell ads inside the program. And that's how he kind of funded himself. Um, uh, ironically, uh, I believe it was uh, in the mid-1920s, 1927, I guess he was 80, 85, 87. Uh, he was hit by a car crossing the street in New York and uh, was uh, never able to walk again and uh, died a couple years later at the age of 90. Uh, O'Leary, in the meantime, he became a baseball pedestrian, he would go to baseball games and uh, challenge uh, the fastest uh, runner on uh, the team to run around the bases twice while he walked around them once. And then he would walk through the stands, hat in hand, uh, literally, collecting nickels and dimes. And that's how he funded his retirement, by staging these exhibitions. And so uh, they both uh, re- remain loyal to the sport uh, right to the bitter end. And uh, uh, Weston, uh, uh, Weston and O'Leary were still uh famous names when they when they passed away in the nineteen twenties. But of course by now they're they're all but forgotten.
1: So Matthew I have to ask, in the course of your research did you did you attempt any walking feats to just see what uh
0: see what this was like? I really actually the book began like the first proposal I had way back uh when I was doing the research for the Steagles book and I discovered this Captain Barkley uh, who, who walked one, one mile every hour, uh, for a thousand consecutive hours, which I think is 41 days. Um, and what I wanted to do was recreate, uh, that walk yeah. and then tell the story of Barclay and pedestrianism in their ride to that walk. Well, uh, my wife was not, uh, enamored of that idea uh, in the least. And, uh, you know, now that we have a, a baby girl, it would have been a little, little hard to just say, I'm going to, I'm going to go walk a, a mile every hour for the next month and a half. Um, but I, 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 uh, I really thought that would have been cool. I think it's, it's entirely doable. Um, um, but I, I, uh, I didn't, I was, I was told I couldn't do it, I guess is the answer to your question. I did see, uh, there was a six day race in Alaska, um, in, uh, in, uh, mid August, uh, that was held in, uh, Anchorage at a dome, uh, there, which was really one of the first official six day races that's, uh, that's been held in the United States for some 15, 20 years. And, uh, and, uh, I would have loved to have gone to attend that. I'm not much of a, I'm not much of a, of an athlete myself. I guess, I suppose maybe I'm living vicariously through the books. So, but I would, I I would like to do, I like walking. I have a Fitbit so I can uh, measure how much I walk every day, and uh, I would, I would really like to if I had the time to uh, to try something like that.
1: Yeah, I, I asked because I wanted to get a sense of uh, if you had a personal experience and how how draining or difficult this was. Because when you read about, oh, they they walked around a track inside of an arena or a convention center, there's kind of I would say this sense of oh, well, how hard can that be? But uh, as you describe in the book, at the end of these races, these six day races, they were just on the verge of collapse.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, and and a lot of them uh, suffered very poor health later in life. I mean, Weston and O'Leary were the exceptions when it comes to the, you know, living a long, healthy life. uh, Frank Hard, who we mentioned earlier, the the, the black pedestrian, he uh, uh, he died quite young in his fifties, I believe, and uh, it's 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 believed he he may have contracted. Uh, he, one of the things these guys, these races were lucrative, but they would do it all the time. Um, you know, you, you would do a six day race in Chicago, and then you might go down to St Louis. Uh, you know, two weeks later, do a six day race there, and then to Philadelphia and do a six day race. And so the damage they did to their bodies just must have been tremendous. And um, and uh, I think a lot of them died prematurely as a result of that. And the and the in the environment, you know, these arenas were terrible, smoke filled, yeah, yeah. Uh, disgusting. Oh, everybody would just be spitting their tobacco on the track. I mean, it was not really uh, uh, the best uh, environment for an athletic event to take place in. And so I'm sure that did uh, even more injury to them.
1: Yeah, there was one place where you where you described that, and it hit me that you're walking around in these enclosed buildings filled with smoke from the oil lamps and cigar smoke, cigarette smoke. And I thought, wow, what a <laughs> terrible environment for yeah. any kind of athletic
0: activity. Weston hated smoking and begged, begged, begged. In fact, one of the races he insisted it be... Uh, uh, that they post no smoking signs and they did although it wasn't strictly adhered to but uh, it might have been one of the first instances of a major uh public event event sporting event being smoke-free uh weston absolutely hated smoking it's ironic that uh he was featured on some of the first uh, tobacco cards because uh he hated tobacco um but uh but yeah it, it was very unsanitary uh, uh, conditions very unsanitary conditions in some of these arenas
1: well, Matthew, I'll ask what you're working on next. Do you have a, a new book project?
0: I do. I have a book uh, coming out uh, next spring, actually, and it is about Abraham Lincoln's dog, Fido. <laughs> so... Really? really that was the name of lincoln's dog yes it was uh, in fact lincoln's fido is sort of the ur fido the original fido uh that popularized the name uh, of, of dogs in the united states um fido lincoln's fido uh fido comes from fidelis uh latin for faithful and loyal and so uh, uh lincoln named the dog fido because he was so faithful and uh lincoln could not take the dog with him to uh washington His dog was very skittish and so he was he broke the, n- n- the news to william tad it wasn't really it was Willie and tad's dog they took care of it and so they left the dog with a neighbor and uh, and after lincoln became president fido was the most famous dog in in the united states but he didn't have a lot of competition <laughs> there weren't a lot of famous dogs in the united states at the time uh so yeah fido was really interesting at the time you know um uh, FIDO was kind of a status symbol for Lincoln. Uh, to own a dog that was purely a pet with no economic purpose uh, was kind of unusual in the 1850s. We're just beginning to see the, be- you know, the beginning of the modern pet industry, I guess you could call it. And so the book is about the history of pets and Lincoln's affection for animals. I mean, his attitude toward uh, animal welfare was way ahead of its time. And uh, and so we uh, kind of wrap all that stuff up in the story of FIDO.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Matthew Algio about his book, Pedestrianism, and Watching People Walk was America's favorite spectator sport, published in 2014 by Chicago Review Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from history to popular music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash new and sports. I'm your host, Bruce Bergen. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.